0: You are listening to the Small Eager Hunting Podcast, the podcast dedicated to just anything and everything that is the white tailed deer. You know me, I'm Ty Miller, your host, founder, and the voice of SmallEagerHunting.com. You are the ones that made this turn from a blog to a website to a YouTube channel to everything that it is. So, hopefully, you find this new venture this new consistent delivery of information via the podcast useful but less chatting on the intro more chatting on the topic let's get this episode started let's talk whitetails Welcome to this episode of the Smaller grinding Podcast. Before we get started, really briefly, it is February 17th, it is approximately 9.30 at night, and before we get moving forward, I just want to take a quick minute and just say that tonight, Ryan Newman was involved in an incredible crash. Um, as of this moment, we do not know if he's alive or if he's made it, what his status is, and uh, being a northern indiana native living in south bend for a time um he was a native to south bend went to purdue university in my home state it's just a little bit jarring and uh i just want to lift him up in prayer and uh when you when you listen to this you know if unfortunately uh, the unspeakable has happened i pray that you will pray for his family pray for his two daughters um that they will be able to get through that and uh but but Lord willing, we will wake up tomorrow. We will have answers, or maybe even go to bed tonight with answers that he's alive and he needs our support and he needs our prayers. And when you listen to this, maybe he's still battling, he's still fighting, he's still going through therapy. Um, and and may that be the case. But with that said, let's uh, move into the real crux of this podcast and future podcasts moving forward. This is a this is something that I've looked forward to, and it it you know. Uh, Let's remove the somber start to this and let's talk about something that I know if, you, if you've if you come to this podcast, whether this is your first time or you've listened to every podcast I've ever put out, you've digested every video I've ever put out, you, you follow me on Facebook, you follow the YouTube uh, channel, you, you check me out on the website, um, you know that I just love discussing whitetail deer, whitetail deer habitat, and I have a real passion to just share my thoughts, share Things that I have learned, whether that be from errors or successes, um, but I'm real, I'm authentic. Um, for those of you who don't know, really briefly, I grew up just hunting and only having access to about nine acres at most. Um, so, and it was right behind my parents' house. I didn't grow up in a, in a household that my dad was um, at the time a a what I would I would classify as a, a real highly uh, sophisticated or, or passionate or educated hunter. Um, he did hunt deer from time to time. Uh, it was more or less to fill the freezer. There was no motives behind it. Um, there was kind of like this, uh, well, big bucks are just something that you luck into. There's nothing that you really can do to do it. You just got to get out there. You know, it's like throw that lure 100,000 times, you're bound to get one. Um, and over time, we've learned otherwise. We've learned that there's a lot we can do. There's a lot of sweat equity, a lot of good decisions, a lot of uh, discipline that we as hunters can exhibit, which greatly increase our potential, our land's potential, our habitat's potential, and that's what I want to talk to you about. So for the coming episodes, I don't know how long this is going to take me to discuss, but we are going to delve into the concept of making a habitat plan, and just some of the questions... That I think every single person, whether you are going to hire a consultant, um, a professional, a forester, whatever it is, um, I think these are things that if they're not having you think about, or you don't already know the answers to, you have no business contracting with them, seeking their their advice, or attempting to even bridge that that conversation with them. These are things that I think every single person we can save ourselves a lot of time and money and effort. And have the answers to a lot of these things. And I do believe, I strongly believe that there are a lot of extremely uh, gifted and qualified and professional uh, Habitat consultants out there, deer consultants out there that are, are worth every penny despite the fact that I just don't understand it. I think they are worth every penny. I know guys like Don Higgins, they go out to properties every year and it, it they are they are like... I don't even know what to call it. It's almost like black magic, how well they see properties, how well they interpret sign, how well they can just read it. They've done it enough. Um, Don puts in more time and energy than anybody that I know, and I know a lot of others that put in a ton. You know, I think very highly of Jake Ellinger. Same thing. He, and Jake kind of has this, this, this uh, ability and knack for smaller size properties because that's just what he grew up with in, in Michigan. Um, high pressure, lower parcel count, higher hunter count. I mean, that's 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 the story of my life as well. So there are a lot of good guys out there, and I don't mean to just list those two. You know, I have a lot of respect for a lot of other ones out there. But I think we, and when I say we, I mean collectively, anybody listening to this podcast, you are doing so because you care about your hunting. You care about your habitat and what you can do to enhance it. So I unfortunately this series, if you will, for those of you who listen to this, that, you know, maybe you don't own your own property yet, or maybe you have to rely upon other people's property and you don't have the ability and the choices to make a lot of these decisions. I still think you can get something out of this, but I do apologize up front. This is definitely geared towards somebody who can implement or start to make a plan for a property. Um, But these are things that maybe if you can begin to grasp them, understand them, and tackle them. If you ever put yourself in a position like I was planning on being able to do in about eight to nine years from now was the initial plan um, to go out, go forth and look for property. I had some ideas and, and I was beginning to, to these were the things I was going to look for in a property. And if I got X property, I already had planned Y responses. If I got Y property, I already had X planned responses for it. So there's there's something that all of you can can learn from. But let's just delve right into it so whether I'm doing a digital consult a boots on the ground consult somebody emails me um, somebody's just talking to me in general Um, a lot of people know that I'm a deer hunter and I'm a habitat guy and they just try to mine my mind if you will for answers for questions for understanding and I am by no means an expert I am not a wildlife biologist I'm not a Nutritionist, uh, I'm not an uh, an herbalist. I'm not any of those things. Um, a lot of what I have learned is from research of other people's works. Fully admit, um, I tackle every single thing that like Dr. Craig Harper puts out. A lot of anything by the MSU Deer Lab, and uh, these are these are these are resources, guys, that I think you. Every single person like us needs to be delving into reading, highlighting, scratching, circling, printing out, making copies. Um, be a literature buff. I know you may not like reading, but I guarantee you if you're like me, if it has to do with deer, it makes it a little bit more palatable. So, uh, And it doesn't hurt to have a little bourbon beside it while you're, you're doing so <laughs> if you're like me. But there's two questions starting right off the bat that I think you have to answer. And that's what this whole podcast is going to be centered around, these two questions. And we're going to tackle them in no specific order. I think you can look at both of these, but I'm going to start with the one that I typically ask people because then everything kind of falls in line for that. However, the second question is not impacted in any way by the way you answer this first question. Okay? Okay. So the first question that you have to be willing to be honest in your answer, and I think I think you have to be realistic as well, and know that this may change over time, but I think you have to have this set from the very beginning, and that is what is your objective for the property? And I know that may seem very easy to answer very concise but put it down in writing actually begin to write um, your mission statement if you will for your property what do you want it to achieve and be honest now don't be unrealistic don't write down I want to have two booners to choose from every single year okay. Um, you know if you live in Iowa maybe just a little joke for all you Iowa guys out there Um, but let's be realistic all right? I'm talking to guys that most likely if you're listening to Small Ear Hunting Podcast it's because you can relate to me you don't have thousands of acres most likely very few of you may have a couple hundred acres but most of you are going to be in that sub hundred acre category the majority of the consult requests I get are from guys in the sub-60, sub-40 acre range. And I'm just saying that because, yes, any property out there could have a booner fall on it. But be realistic. So what is your objective of your property? So I'll answer, and then I'll I'll also give you the updated answer for my specific property so in roughly 2015 um, real real stress and anxiety over the future of my being able to hunt became kind of at the forefront of my mind it was about this time that my mother was beginning to express Uh, pretty adamant feelings towards selling the homestead property, which is the property I grew up on, and it's one of my, for sure, places that I can hunt every year Um, it's a good pass-through property we've killed some amazing bucks at that property over the years Uh, vastly more quality bucks than people probably thought were possible back there, and very easily, the blonde-haired kid that started killing Pope and Young Deer behind his house is the reason why there for a while you could hunt back there and on opening day of gun season you easily had 14 hunters within the 10 contiguous parcels i mean it was insane the hunter density back there was just out of this world and part of that was me to blame because I like to brag and do all my friends in the area, and they told their fathers and their relatives, and word spread. And I'm not against uh, celebrating and sharing trophies, but looking back on it now, I probably could have squeezed a couple more really good years out of the homestead property if we had just kept our mouth shut. But, hey, it was was fun. Um, But anyways, they were looking at selling eventually. So, you know, I'm in the back of my mind thinking, oh, man, if they sell – I really I don't have anywhere that's like guaranteed I have the swamp property which we have a really good relationship with the owners uh but they were even beginning to question how long they were going to be able to just you know operate the farm and and the owner has some health issues and things of that nature and I'm like oh man there's that place and then we we have kind of an understanding that we get to bow hunt what I call the river bottom property but that's, you know, not guaranteed every year. We ask every year. It's not a lease agreement or anything like that. And then the pasture land is kind of hit or miss whether his relation wants to bow hunt or not. But we do have permission there kind of until they move. It's, it's one of those, like, spoken things. And I, I have one three-acre spot that connects to the homestead property that pretty much um, the woman who lives there now, her father... Promised me as long as he was alive that I could hunt back there, and even though she's not a big hunter, she honors her father's wishes, and she's like, as long as I own this property, you can as well. So I have that, and then um, perhaps one of our favorite spots is like a little two, two and a half acre spot that connects to the homestead property. I know that sounds crazy, but it really is. It's it's the best pinch point in the whole entire world. Um, as long as those people live there, we probably have that place. But again, you know all of them could move. And here I am stuck with just the homestead property until mom and dad get ready to move. And I just was like, I got to have a plan. You know, public land didn't fear me. Uh, hunting out of state at public land didn't fear me. I, I knew that was an option and it would always be an option. That's the awesome thing about America. That's the awesome thing about uh, all the millions of acres that we own. But, you know, I was like, I need to have a plan. So, I kind of started laying down a groundwork of, okay, I want to save every single year, every single month, every single week. I don't care if it was a dollar put in one week and $100 the next week. I was going to start saving. And in 10 to 15 years, I was going to have enough for a solid down payment on a land um, of mine. You know, whether that be land that's only 10 acres in size, I was hoping to get like 15 was kind of my goal. You got to remember, I only grew up on like eight or nine, so that's basically double that. And I didn't need to have prime ground, but something fell into place and a gentleman wanted to know if I, I, I am I serious that I, I'd be interested in, in his land that he had for sale? So I was like, yeah, at that price that he was telling me, I definitely would. So I walked it one morning in 2016 and in March of 2016, we, we bought that property. I was the owner of a little over 22 acres had a pond going down the middle of it fallow fields on both sides of the pond more size on the east side of the pond the pond was like a keyhole down the middle of the main chunk and uh I was faced with the reality that now all my years of knowledge and all my years of uh kind of claiming I knew what I was doing was time I finally had a blank canvas of my own to do it and it was exciting but it was scary because I'd never actually really decided you know from the very beginning blank canvas what do I want to do so one of the first things I did was I wanted to know what my objective was what did I want my property to be what were my hunting goals? Because you got to remember, um, part of my objective is deer centered. In 2016, it was all about deer. I wanted every decision that I made on that property to be deer driven. I'm not a turkey hunter. I'm not a bird hunter. Um, I'll kill squirrels very rarely if I got the 22 after season um, and I see them. Uh, I've done that before. <laughs> Been walking the property looking for sheds and hinging a couple trees. And uh, one year I went home with two squirrels and a rabbit the same day. But I that's all just cherries on top. That's not that's not any decisions are going to be made by any species besides deer. So that was part of my objective. The other part was I wanted to create a safe haven to realistically be able to target a pope and young deer every year. I wanted to have a pope and young buck or close to target every single year. I was still more so concerned about inches back then. Um it was just where I was as a hunter. You know, I you put a hundred and hundred and thirty inch buck in front of me, that's a three and a half year old then and put in front of me, right beside him, a 110-inch, five-and-a-half-year-old, I'm going to shoot the 130-inch then. Now, I'd probably shoot the 110. Actually, I know I would. That's that's not how I was then. So my objective was I wanted to create a deer-centered property that was a safe haven that would give me the opportunities to chase Pope and Young-caliber deer. Um, I personally... Didn't care if I filled the freezer or not. My goals were not to have more deer or just to see deer. I wanted to see the right deer. I wanted to have those bucks. So you could say I was a mature -er buck hunter. That was what I wanted my property to be centered around. So be be realistic. You know, do you just want to see deer? You love deer. You want to be engrossed in deer. You want to just have tons of deer. Um, do you care about filling the freezer? You know, if you look back on a season and you put three does in the freezer, but you may not harvest a buck, is that is that like is that a, is that a really successful season to you? And be honest, there's nothing wrong with your answer. Mine would be no. And, and, and with the caveat of depending how the season went, you know, if I'm chasing a specific couple bucks, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be perfectly content. It could have been a very successful season and I didn't actually punch my tag on a buck. That's fine. But be realistic with your goals. I've met guys that they've never killed any mature bucks. They have never killed anything over 90 inches. And that's really not a motivation for them. They just want to have more deer on their property. They've seen their their, their family property go from booming in deer numbers and and it's just kind of died. And they don't understand why, and I can usually answer a lot of the factors that are leading to the why, but that doesn't change their objective. Their objective is they want to see more deer. They want to harvest more deer. They want to have the opportunity to climb the stand and see a lot of deer. So that drives a lot of your decisions and a lot of your choices. Um, I tend to be in the same camp, and you're probably wondering, well, why is that so, Ty? You know, whether you're wanting to fill the freezer or kill mature bucks, how does that change how you uh, design your property? To be honest with you, it it can be a huge difference maker, a massive difference maker. Um, If all I care about is filling the freezer and such, my focus is going to be on ice cream, food plots, like, a lot of food, and a lot of really attractive food for the does. Oh, I want the most amount of deer hitting my food sources, which means I'm going to attract all the doe groups. I'm going to have does everywhere, and I'm going to fill that freezer. I'm going to fill it very easily, most likely, or at least have the chances. I should say, you know, it's one thing to attract the deer; it's another thing to execute the shot. Um, whether you're a bow hunter gun hunter, it doesn't matter. I've met guys that you can put a deer 40 yards in front of them, and they may struggle. But that that's the difference of the objectives. If my objective is mature, mature bucks, I tend to be in the same camp as guys like Jeff Sturgis. Especially on these small type properties. I'm not going to worry necessarily about offering the ice cream food plots, if you will, in the summer months. Uh, Spring grain up and into the early part of the summer or late part of the summer, um, depending on the area, obviously a drought could impact this fairly significantly. But for the most part, the spring especially, late spring, early summer, I mean, that is when nature is just kicking butt in production of food for deer. Whether that be through herbaceous vegetation, new woody brow shoots, you know just in general, the ag crop industry is in full tilt, like all of those things are just slamming deer with food. It's not a time frame where you really gotta worry about them. you really gotta worry about providing to them. you know it's just they they got choices all night in their fourth and fifth feedings on destination food sources. They've got, they've got options. And then they've got options. They're literally betting in their food a lot of times or really close to it. But if I'm wanting to design a property that increases and has a lot of buck use potential, I'm talking about a property that doesn't rely on the rut for me to see a bunch of bucks. I see a bunch of bucks irregardless of when the rut hits. I'm not going to focus on summer food as much. I'm not going to focus on being able to provide, you know, a real large um, soybean style food plot rotation. Soybeans are great. I've had them. I don't offer enough acreage to where it significantly draws in the does. If I had more, it probably would, but you know, I still have too much deer density on my place um, to worry about it. But it does impact what food selection you're going to have. And, that, and that's a discussion moving down further down our list of questions that we're going to discuss in future episodes. But your objective for what you want your hunting to be drives nearly every other answer and every other plan and every other decision you make. Now, a lot of them overlap at times, but there are things that you're going to do that are directly in response to your objective. And, very simply, if you don't have an objective or a goal, we'll never know if our plan was successful or not. So, you know, if I check back in with you in four or five years and be like, hey, Tony, just to use a name, Tony, you know, our our goal when we started this plan and we laid out some ideas and you were going to start into it four or five years ago was you wanted to to have a chance at, not harvest, but have a chance at, whether you did your part or not, you wanted to have a chance to shoot a Pope and Young buck. Has that happened? Oh, yeah, Ty, I mean, about year three, I had opportunity after opportunity. I just wasn't up the tree. Trail cam camera images indicate that this buck was was killable at the location during daylight hours multiple times. Year four, I got a shot at a similar buck, didn't didn't close the deal, um, and then in year five, I put down a 138 inch four year old. And you know, if I'm if I'm talking to this person in person, they're smiling from ear to ear. Tony's got this huge grin that we all can relate to. You know, he he can't tell the story quick enough and fast enough, and I'm just sitting there grinning because you know this like I already know just from judging Tony's face, that he's happy. But he's happy because his objective was met. And the crazy thing about objectives is they have a tendency to move. They have a tendency to change. So here I am. It's 2020. Almost, basically, you know, the anniversary of owning that property. So 17 would have been a year, 18-2, 19-3. This year it's going to be the four-year anniversary of owning that property, and I've killed two bucks off of there. Pops has killed one, and boy, have we seen just a really good buck population out there. Um, my goals have changed significantly. We have—I never thought I thought I would. I thought I would have to lessen my objectives. You know, I've always—and I still hold to – the Pope and Young goal, but it's kind of in conjunction with, I want four and a half year old deer older period. And that property has shown me despite the trespassing, which is an extreme headache. And we are taking extreme measures to fight. Um, Despite the road hunting and the poaching on property, you know, we're the only people on the three largest properties next to mine, touching mine, or across from mine that have permission to, to be on them we only can hunt mine but we have permission to be on the other two um in case anybody listening to this uh knows the area i'm not going to state whether we have permission to run cameras because i'd rather catch you so there's your advice um and your answer Um, sadly that is true guys i have people literally uh in my area that yeah, we'll just, we'll, well, I won't get into that. That's not on topic. But what is your objective? Your objective drives your entire plan. Your objective is how we measure your plan. And then once you've met your objective, do you need to tweak it? Do you want to tweak it? Do you want to change it? That's a question that you put on the back burner and you don't really have to answer until you finally check that objective. And you can cross it off that you met it. And maybe you leave it the same. Or maybe you amend it. But that's a conversation that you can have at a later date. The second question I'd like to discuss when making a Habitat plan is one that I have talked about time and time again. (coughs) Excuse me. And I remember, I wish I would have had more time to discuss this concept with... uh, the guys over at Habitat Podcast, but I remember discussing the macro approach and the micro approach to things. And so often you hear people when they're talking about a property or a plan, they they, they talk to that, that property specifically, a micro approach to things. And you have to have a micro mindset when it comes to laying out your property, but not in totality. You need to step back. And look at the surrounding area around your property before you make any decisions. Any decisions. And this is the one thing I really wish I would have done a little bit better on. Um, I kind of knee-jerked reaction, made a couple decisions, thinking about my property only and not those around me. But, you know, pull up an aerial or drive around And just take a mental note of the surrounding area to your your property. What is it predominant? What are the predominant characteristics of it? Is it a lot of ag ground? A lot of row crops? A lot of, you know, and, you know, not just is it a lot of row crops or a lot of ag crops. Find out. Drive around after harvest season, the next spring. Do you live in an ag area that a lot of farmers utilize cover crops? Winter rye. Do any of them plant brassicas after the fact? Do they do a rotational cover crop? And you might be like, well, why does that matter? That's a lot of food during the late part of the hunting season and into the late season that some ag areas are completely void of. I live in a pretty agricultural significant uh area give or take it's highly dense and then it just it it switches from city to to the county or the countryside really quick Um, but a lot of row crops and we don't have a ton of farmers that do cover crops so to be completely frank and honest with you the large agricultural fields and the large large and the the number of acres in agricultural, there's a lot of people out there that want to lie and say that that's good for the deer. Absolutely not. It might be good for the deer in the summer months and until they're harvested, but then honestly, until the residual is gone, it's a deer desert. There's nothing left in those fields. Modern harvesting equipment does not leave the corn behind or the soybean behind that it used to when it when you harvested. It just simply doesn't happen that much. They're made to be as efficient as they possibly can, which means those fields are void of cover and void of food. There is no reason a deer of any sizable intelligence, any significant age, should be in that field. Now, they might be. I get images of deer in barren fields all the time from people claiming, well, you're wrong, I see they're fizzing. Okay, well, how long ago was it harvested? How long did those deer stay there? Well, I don't know, I didn't stick around. Or, well, they, they were gone in 10 minutes. Well, of course they were. Those empty agricultural fields are going to provide those deer nothing. So... And I I say all this because this question is, what is the surrounding area like? If it is a highly dense agricultural area, chances are you're going to have no worries when it comes to food in the summer months and arguably in the early fall. Depending on the farmer's uh, habits, the crunch time frame is really going to set in for these deer post-harvest and into the winter. That's where you could design your property with that in mind and be the sanctuary, be the destination, be it all for your area localized deer herd. Now, if they do cover crops, yes, you are going to have a challenge in offering them, you know, you're not going to compete with them with the destination food sources. And what I mean by that is is their long-term, long-time, after-sunset feedings that happen. And that's not, you know, unless you have a lot of acres to spare, that's not the feedings that I, I want to serve. I want to be the first or final feeding right before they go to bed, that feeding midday, which they feed at some point midday, mid-morning, midday, somewhere in there. And then they typically get up two or four hours after that midday feeding or early, you know, late, mid-morning. They get up two to four hours after that. They feed again. And that is either right before sunset or they'll get up again right around sunset, hour before, hour and a half before. And they'll mill around. They'll eat. And then typically once sunset falls in, they're either already at... Or going to their destination food source. And they will feed at least twice when the sun's down. And and those are their large consumption style feedings. So, I don't necessarily need to be those. Outside of poaching, I don't have to worry about neighbors shooting deer during those time frames either. But that feeding right before, that third feeding and that midday feeding time frame, those are the ones I want to key in on. I want to provide food sources that don't have to be destination food source sized. But they got to be secure. They got to be close to sanctuary. To cover. To security. A deer on my property just a little note or takeaway a deer on my property literally is never more than probably two bounds and we've seen how much they can how much ground they can cover and how quickly they can get two bounds in from standing in cover that is covering their belly touching their sides and most likely if they lower their head you'll be lucky to see their ears that's what i'm talking about they can feed during the day all they want because they feel safe. Boy, they can slip away before you even know what's happening. They hear or see a coyote coming, they can slip into cover ASAP. They hear humans co- coming, they're already in the cover. And they have multiple ways to it. That's another thing. But what is the predominant area around your property. Sorry, I started going into discussion about cover, discussion about food. See, I I just, it all ties together. But getting back to the macro approach of trying to answer questions about what is the area around your property? You got to know these answers. Is it predominant ag? Is it predominant cover? Is it predominant, you know, subdivisions? Is it, what does it have to offer the deer? And just start listing these things out. Literally write these down. And you're going to begin to see, you know, what are some items in the bucket that the surrounding area is already covering, already crossing off. And it's rare, but I I have had a few guys where there's, like, no food around them, a lot of thick cover in, in various forms. And the four forms of cover, like bedding cover, and I'm not talking just canopy cover. They could be mature. You know, you pull up an aerial, they could be mature timber that is a desolate, just desert underneath them no understory no herbaceous vegetation no hardwood regeneration because there's so much shade there's nothing under them. that's not what i'm talking about look in the surrounding area for cover that can be sanctuary bedding security cover those typically come in four different forms in my opinion bedding cover comes in four forms you have your thermal style which is like your evergreens Um, highly hinged cut areas could serve as, as depending if they're high, um, high hinge cuts are not necessarily needed a lot. They're very rarely needed, but you know, it is a, it is a way to create thermal cover kind of, but predominant thermal cover is going to be in the form of evergreens, Norway spruces, cedars, uh, white pines, things of that nature, uh, chunks and stands of that. And it only needs to be, you know, it could be a dozen trees in one area that's a that's a pocket of thermal cover that a buck might latch onto depending on the surrounding area around it. But you got bedding cover that you could be seeing in the surrounding areas and making note of that are thermal cover, evergreens, early successional regeneration of hardwoods, recently logged uh wood chunks, um, those agricultural fallow fields that have been vacant and fallow for 20 plus years and now not just those quick regenerative cedars and and uh, poplars and, and in my area. A lot of pear trees will pop up. Those Bradford pears, those calorie pears will pop up first. But we're talking about now there's oaks starting to climb up and through the ranks. Maples and walnuts and cherries. But uh, while that's all sub-15 feet or so, regenerative hardwood, hardwoods, a lot of stem count, that's good bedding cover. Um, third type would be grasses or swamp styles where there's not a lot of, uh, woody stemmed plants that are growing. There might be some bushes and such, but it's pretty sporadic. It's a lot of grasses, um, could be CRP fields, switchgrass fields, things of that nature. Or the fourth and final is like a bush shrub, non-hardwood regenerative area. Um, some swamps will fall into this that don't have a lot of water count and there's a lot of uh bushes in there whether that be autumn olives, bush honeysuckle, uh, tag elder, um red osier dogwood. Could be a cypress swamp or not a cypress swamp, but uh what is up in Wisconsin, a lot of black cedar swamps. Um were kind of an incredible thing. I'd never seen one in person, but I've been up there a couple times now on consults and just incredible. Incredibly thick. Uh, swamp-like features up there pretty impressive but so you got your thermal cover early successional regenerative hardwoods grasses or swamps and then bush shrub non-hardwood regenerative areas so on my specific property when you expand out east of me i've got a i've got a creek bottom property that we have permission to be on but we can't hunt but i know it well it's it's creek bottom Uh, low growth grasses mixed cedars kind of like that regenerative the edges are fighting to be a regenerative hardwood with the rest of it being like a bush bush early successional shrub like um, bedding area there is a pretty pretty mature hardwood stand to the north of me there's no real thermal cover except for on my property i've got a got some stands of pines and such um No real thick grasses. A lot of the bedding area around mine is that early successional uh, regenerative fields or uh, bush shrub style. Um, So one of the things that if that's a similar thing to you, um, try to see if you can provide one of the buckets of cover and bedding that isn't being provided for. But that's a pretty normal thing. Usually food is not the main issue around the surrounding property. But let's get back to my example where if it is. So let's say you look around and you've got not only good cover options like we just discussed. But you've got a lot of that. And there's no food. You honestly will be one of the rare examples where we may focus on food a lot more on your property. Than 9 out of 10 properties that, that I, I talk to. Typically, um, good cover habitat is a lacking feature in an area. Typically, we either have open agricultural fields or we have mature timber. There's not much else. Well, deer don't live in and thrive in closed canopy mature timber lots for a reason, and they don't live in empty, fallow, desolate harvested ag fields for a reason. Um, the, the, I will be honest, if that is kind of your surrounding area, a lot of ag, a lot of mature timber, you start doing awesome habitat work on your property. I don't care if it's just seven acres, you are going to see deer like you've never seen deer before. They will find it because once they find it just once, they're going to realize how sweet it is and they're going to set up shop. So I encourage each and every one of you to Don't think just micro at first. Think big picture. Think macro. And honestly, when you begin to think macro, you begin to realize the size of your property may not be as significant of an issue as you thought. There are a lot of negative features about my property encroachment of neighboring subdivisions or residential houses that lead to a lot of trespassing. It eliminates movement. There's, there's not a ton of contiguous area for the deer to move. There's just a limited number of deer that can really use my, my property and the surrounding, but That's also been kind of a benefit to me, and I quickly realized that as long as there's not a ton of development that continues to occur, my land could literally be as small as five to seven acres, and I could be extremely successful. Extremely successful, given all the factors that make that chunk well. I go back to my example of one of the best stands we have is not a property my father or I own, Pops as you guys have heard me refer to him a lot but Pops and I don't own this place it's at most three, three and a half acres of timber of of non-yard and house and barn area and it is the best location ever that we have hunted yet three and a half acres now, I understand, none of us are probably going to go looking for three and a half acres, but that should be a little bit of motivation to you. That there's a lot you can do if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you're like, you oh, know, man, I got, I got five acres. We've got a house and yard that take up about an acre, it. I got four acres. Ty, is there anything I can do? Yes, you can do stuff. Are you kidding me? You may have to scale back your expectations a lot more, be realistic, but there's a lot you can do, a lot you can do. Answer these questions, what's your objective, what's the surrounding area like first? And once you have those two things, you're ready to really start seeing what we can find in the weeds of the answers to the following questions, which we will tackle on the next episode and more. So that is all I have for this episode of the Smaller Grinding Podcast. Hopefully this is begin a little bit of a conversation within your own mind. And hopefully you will sit down in the coming days and figure out, one, what's your objective? And two, what's the surrounding area look like around your property? And for those of you out there, like I expressed If this is all a hypothetical situation for you right now, that second question, let's tackle some things. You know, like I said, I had a plan for responses in a way within reason. You know, you can't get too specific, but pull up an aerial map and just randomly pick a location. Make a plan for it. Of what you think that property's, biggest bucket list items that are being unfulfilled by the surrounding area are what is its least. Begin to look at a property like that basing upon the surrounding areas and you begin to really begin to uh, you begin to really understand one of the biggest things that I think many people overlook and then they realize it years after they've started doing stuff. You know, Food is not an issue at this property. So why have we been striving for three years to just have this insanely well-done food plot regiment, and we've neglected everything else? Or I've got cover that is literally next to my property. It's 40 acres owned by a veterinarian. They are so anti-hunting. It's a sanctuary. Why am I not using that as one of my main security cover, bedding areas. Why don't I create a staging area between it and my food? And they're going to, it's a natural flow. They're going to want to leave there, come through my, maybe I make a, a a natural regenerative area, a, a swath of an acre or two that leads directly past some stands and dumps into some micro food plots broken up by switchgrass or bushes or shrubs. Um, briars, brambles, and they've got a few food plots they can filter their way through on out and it's a way to get them to to get up from their beds, feed through my property, and then feed off of it onto the neighboring large agricultural sources. But no, I've been focused on just food. Or I've been focused on only providing bedding and ignoring the fact I have one of the best bedding areas in the entire area right next to my property. There's nothing wrong with using other people's habitat for your favor, in your favor. Begin to look at your property like that. Begin to wrap your head around some hypothetical situations. And I think you'll begin to visualize a direction you need to head. And then let's start talking about some things. And we'll do that in the coming episodes. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the Smaller like Hunting Podcast. Hopefully it's been entertaining at least. Educational, even more so, um but most importantly, hopefully you realize that I'm a real guy, I've been there, I've done that, and hopefully some of this will assist you in maybe not experiencing the bad things, the mistakes that I've been through, and uh, hopefully this has all been worthwhile, and hopefully the coming episodes are as well. If they are, please do me a favor, like, subscribe, follow me on YouTube. Um, Facebook is probably the place it gets updated the most. But uh, review the podcast on whatever podcast streaming app or service you utilize. It goes a long way. And as always, guys, God bless and good luck out there. As I already said before, thank you for listening to this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast. Hopefully, wherever you find yourself, private, public, big land, small land, new hunter or old hunter, there's something that you've learned, for ultimately that's all I care about. If you have any topic discussion ideas for the Small Acre Hunting Podcast, be sure to email me at smallacrehunting at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to all the videos on YouTube, like and follow the Facebook page, check out the website from time to time. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. God bless and good luck out there.